When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, my fellow Astorians. Welcome to a special episode, A Song of Ice and Fire and Dune, with our good friend Alt-Shift-X. This episode was originally recorded over on his channel several months ago, but we put up a nice cleaned up, edited version for y'all here on the podcast feed, because a lot of y'all probably missed it. Or perhaps it's time for a re-listen. Enjoy! Today we're going to talk about A Song of Ice and Fire, the Game of Thrones books, in comparison to Dune. There's a lot of interesting similarities. Uh, this stream was Aziz's idea. I've got a special guest today, Aziz from History of Westeros. Thanks for coming on, Aziz. Hey, thanks for having me. It's so much fun to talk about parallels. It's one of the things we do over on my channel. And usually it's historical parallels to A Song of Ice and Fire or parallels within A Song of Ice and Fire within the history of itself. Yeah, it, it's funny because like Dune and Game of Thrones are both so famous and popular, but I think a lot of people don't immediately see the similarities between them because they are different in a lot of ways. Like Dune is the science fiction series and it's got this sort of dense philosophical tone to it whereas you know game of thrones is the medieval fantasy and so there are these superficial differences to it but i think the more you look you you see how both series play with the same tropes and the same archetypes in um really interesting ways so i'm excited to talk about all these similarities yeah it's going to be very deconstructive very meta and we're gonna to have to constantly ask ourselves is this a trope that they both use is this a influence that they've both tapped into or is this genuinely something that george rr R. martin borrowed or was influenced by directly from frank herbert and occasionally that's going to be hard to determine or it might be a case of both and of course we have to reckon for whether it's subconscious or conscious and we will never be to know that but <laughs> it'll be fun regardless yeah it's tricky to know for sure but uh fortunately you've done your research so our uh, first example is one that we actually do know that George Martin did deliberately in terms of similarities between Ned Stark and later Atreides from Dune. We have a quote here that comes from an interview that he did, and this is actually a translation because he did this interview, I think, was it Russian? Yeah, it was Russian. And they were trying to ask him about of all things that very related to this, they were asking him about Tolstoy influences on A Song of Ice and Fire. And that's an important note here, given what George says, which is, Lord Eddard Stark is a great example. I always understood that he was not going through the finale of the first volume. Here, the model for me was not Tolstoy, but rather the science fiction Frank Herbert and his Dune. Frank knew that the Duke of Summer would die within the first part, after which the reader's attention shifted to the fate of his son and daughter. It went, it seems to me, a little further than Herbert, Ned Stark held out much longer, and he is an important character, not a secondary one, so the reader sees the world, including his eyes, talking about the famous Martin POV point of view characters, uh, the more impact the death has, of course. And so that's our first major comparison, as you can see from the thumbnail, perhaps, Duke Leto and Ned Stark. And the parallels here are just all over the place. There's a ton of them, and some of them are also related to plots 
related to him and not directly these two characters. So this in particular is a very rich part of our set of connections for sure. Yeah, because they're both like held up as paragons of honor and morality at the same time as being these like feudal lords who rule over big chunks of land and they have this huge power and they have this huge responsibility and they're presented as like a model of how to use power well and they are a father figure you know ned is a beloved father to john and Arya and sansa and rob and all the starks and leto is a beloved father of paul and a, and a beloved lover of their partner leto's lady jessica and ned's lady catelyn have like a really wholesome loving relationship so they're sort of like the idealized father in both stories i think that's well said and gets to the point really well the they are that role within the story as well which is part of this which is certainly we could call a trope the father figure that dies kind of early ish or i say ish because in ned stark case it's it's ish he's still fairly early in the in the scheme of what would be i guess seven or eight books but it doesn't feel that early when you're reading it for the first time. <laughs> it's like, oh, wow. Yeah, it's definitely like a first act. It's like a first act death that then spurs on the heroes. Like like the death of the father is like the inciting incident that's that that feeds the conflict of, of like the main story. Yeah, and I really like what you said too about how they're both seen as good examples of power and using power. And how that's a model that is hard to repeat, especially when times become difficult and people are willing to get really dirty and underhanded. And that's when someone like Ned or Leto is a bit of fish out of water, which is part of both of their stories. Oh, it's almost literally true for the Duke because he comes from a water planet, right? <laughs> and he goes to a desert <laughs> planet. <laughs> so the fish out of water works particularly well for him. But then, you know, Ned Stark, he's obviously out of his depth when it comes to intrigue. That's a plot line that comes up early and maintains itself for a long time. It's like, he's not that good at this. His intentions are very clearly good. You can see that much, but he's clearly getting fooled by people. He's not making a lot of progress. And then it just backfires on him. He ends up in prison. Yeah, like you can see the, the parallels there, especially when the way they are both brought into it. I love this part. They both knew it was bad. They both knew they were getting into danger. Like Ned has the moment where he's trying to decide whether he should even go at all. And he and Maester Lewin and Catelyn are debating it. And, you know, the show reverses the way the books do it. But either way, it's, it ends up the same decision of yes i'll go and it's the same with leto like he and, and the, one of the reasons the, the, the logic is that well we can't really refuse we have to go or robert won't trust us or refusing is worse than going even if going is dangerous and it's very similar for leto's like well we have to we have to accept this you know even though we even though we know it's a trap we have to walk into the trap and you know survive it <laughs> and even the, despite the we fact that we're going to we're going to walking into a trap we're going to be able to hopefully that'll be enough to survive it and then we can come out ahead but of course that doesn't happen yeah yeah it's it's striking how similar it is like leto is forced by the emperor to take control of arrakis and ned is forced by the king to take control as hand of the king like like they both <laughs> yeah. are are chosen like that to take power and they both do it kind of unwillingly leto is more willing than than ned is i would say and yeah as you say they both know that this political situation is dangerous but they both 
go into it anyway and and they die for it and they both and they both are capable politicians but like not not devious enough they both underestimate the willingness of their political enemies to destroy them because neither of them are soft but they are not cunning like they're both strong authoritative and willing to make tough decisions but they are not cunning they're not and they don't see cunning as well yeah i i, I would definitely say though that i, I think the dune books show us a more sort of dark and conniving side to Leto that a lot of the adaptations don't capture like it, it we cover this in like the real dune video on alt shift x which talks about how the atreides really do a lot of like sneaky nasty immoral stuff in terms of how they treat civilians and using propaganda and and their mm. whole like plan to exploit the fremen so like there, there is definitely like a a darkness and a you know conniving nature to the atreides but i but i think there is also a bit of a parallel to that with the starks in a song of ice and fire as well because a song of ice and fire like the starks are presented as these great heroic good lords who everyone respects and you know the grand order conspiracy everyone wants the starks to come back but you know there, there's hints of darkness to the starks like when you read the world of ice and fire mm -hmm. world book and like the history section with the starks is just and then the brutal kings of winter subjugated the Marsh King and took his daughters. And then they subjugated the Baru King. And then they sub like they were brutal warlords who took over the North by conquering and and killing and t and st and taking the daughters uh, and forcibly marrying and like doing all these awful things. That is how the Starks took the North. And and there's also stories like <laughs> the Knights King, which is, you know, this mythical figure who made a deal with the White Walkers and Old Nan hints that the Knights King might have been a Stark. And if we want to get really tinfoil, I think it's a fun theory that the Starks might literally have the blood of White Walkers in them and that might be this Lovecraftian secret. So 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 I won't go on too much, but I I think that A Song of Ice and Fire also has a sort of hidden darkness to their supposedly noble heroic family, which I suspect might come to the fore in later books. Those were really good examples, and there's maybe a few more, like just the fact that Ned executes a Night's Watchman in the very first chapter after the prologue, right? That wasn't evil, but it was uh, a mistake, I suppose, at least not to listen to him. You know, maybe he had no choice based on the laws, but it was definitely not a good guy thing, and it, an odd way to present a, a heroic figure yeah. to start off, uh, especially given what we know about the Night's Watch and the fact that that guy really did see a White Walker. I mean, damn, like that was rough. So, you know, you you forgive it because of the circumstance and the fact that Ned's ignorant of what that man really saw and the fact that he's acting insane. But Bran asks the question like, well, you know, he was afraid and was he insane? And that obviously sets up a lot of the things you're talking about. Fast forward to much later in the story when we learn that the North itself the practice of worship of the old gods, which has been led by the Starks, included yeah, yeah, things like human sacrifice and and first night and awful other traditions that are nowhere near the province of good guys. <laughs> yeah, 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 I totally agree. And and also like there's there's a lot we don't know about Ned personally. Like like we think we know a lot of what happened at the Tower of Joy and what happened at Starfall when Ned took the sword Dawn back to Starfall and then Ashara Dane 
killed herself. Like, what what really happened with Ashara? What really happened with Lyanna and Rhaegar in the Tower of Joy? Like, my point is that there could be bad things that Ned did that we don't yet know about. So there's definitely sure. more room to sort of deepen and darken Ned's past. And, and yeah, like, as we were talking about, like, the, the history stuff, there's another great parallel in that the Starks have ruled the North for supposedly some, like, 8,000 years or 6,000 years. And there's a similar number for how long the Atreides have supposedly ruled Caladan. Like, it's a ridiculously, unrealistically long time that these dynasties <laughs> have survived. And I think the implication in in both is that the way that you survive as a ruler for thousands of years is by being occasionally brutal. And your point is great about, you know, we are introduced to Ned Stark chopping off a dude's head. And we see that through Bran's perspective. And Bran feels, has mixed feelings about this. He's like, wow, I love my dad because he's so kind and loving. But also, wow, my dad is a lord who cuts off people's heads. Like, and, and I think that Dune and A Song of Ice and Fire are making the same point about power here in how power by its nature sort of sort of corrupts people and forces people to make these really tough choices that are sometimes dehumanizing and sometimes make us compromise our morals and sometimes force us to do bad things. So Dune and A Song of Ice and Fire are both definitely about power and, and how power affects people. No matter what you do, you're going to harm people when you're wielding power on that scale. And that's part of the lens through which you have to view these characters. And the ancestry is such a big part of it. You're right that not only are their fathers a big deal, but the grandfather figure is a big deal for, yeah. you know, the old Duke, they call him right in Dune. <laughs> yeah. That he's such an important figure, the way he's his bravery and all these these examples he set and how well he's remembered. Rickard Stark is a pretty important figure for how things are set up in A Song of Ice and Fire, you find out. And of course, his death, the hands of Ares and that's obviously really important. But the things he was doing before that, the great Southron's con conspiracy, whatever parts of that you believe, some of it were certainly happening to some degree. So that's a pretty familiar as well, though those kind of intrigues are always going to be part of any sort of political story. High intrigue goes with royal families and dynasties and bloodlines. And, and that's a feature of the world building that's really similar, despite the fact that one is taking place in space and one is taking place in... <laughs> Very low, stubbornly low, aggressively stubbornly low tech environment. It stayed that way so long. Now, which interestingly, I think is, is something that Dune uses as well. And is one of my favorite, the slight diversion here, of things about Dune and how he wrote it to avoid the technology problem was to build in the whole Butlerian Jihad to explain why certain technologies, which must have seemed inevitable in his, uh, in his time, which are, you know, kind of happening in our time now, he wrote in why those things aren't part of the world and create a compelling reason for why thinking machines don't exist. And there's similar, not as direct, but undertones of reducing technology or keeping things in a dark age or, and or magic having comings and goings on a grand scale in terms of how, you know, like the comet or how certain eras of A Song of Ice and Fire seem to have, magic seems to work better. Age of Heroes versus like now being times where it seems to work particularly well, even if we don't know why. So yeah, there's a lot of that. And that's, I think that's a, a part of the world building that, like you said, it's hard to notice that because it's fantasy versus sci-fi even though one is a 
you know, Dune has a lot of fantasy elements to it, I would say, which is, you know, that's not a pejorative by any means. I, I love fantasy. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Both Westeros and the Dune Imperium seem to be, like, technologically stagnant or even going technologically backwards. And they both have in-world law reasons for that. Like, Dune technology doesn't progress because they've got this Butlerian jihad banning computers. And A Song of Ice and Fire, Westeros' technology doesn't develop, possibly, because of the Long Night. Because the White Walkers keep turning up, like the Reapers in Mass Effect, and wiping people out. Mm. Like, it's not confirmed, but some people speculate that the White Walker Long Night might be a cycle that happens over and over. And well, and and I mean, I mean, that's very speculative. Another simpler explanation is the irregular seasons. Like when you have a winter that is sometimes two years and sometimes ten years, and that kills lots of people, that's going to set you back technologically. So, like, there are in-universe reasons why Westeros's technology is kind of stagnant, and likewise with Dune. Yeah, and what's cool about both of them, and this is something that isn't really a one borrowing from the other so much as a really fun trope that's used in both fantasy and sci-fi is the idea of powerful objects from another time or powerful objects that are otherwise in a lower tech environment. Dune has some incredibly high tech things mixed in with you can't barely use like something more than a calculator, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And like these incredible personal energy shields and other incredible technologies like the still suit versus a song of ice and fire, which is comparisons like Valyrian steel or glass candles. These are, of course, more explained by magic than technology, but they have the same effect on the story in terms of what, what it allows to be possible and the way people seek after these items because of their value in that setting. And uh, in some cases, they're extremely necessary. <laughs> you, you must have them or else. Uh, yeah. And that's, yeah, uh, there's, there's even some, some more examples in that I'm sure I'm missing. What, what do you got? Well, I think one of the central ones is in Dune, nuclear weapons or atomics are like this crucially oh, yeah, yeah, important yeah. weapon that there, there are all these rules pro prohibiting the houses from using them and that is like one of the key key forms of power in this world and that's really similar to the dragons in a song of ice and fire like george martin has compared the dragons to nuclear weapons and mm. the dragons are also a power that is tightly controlled and only the targaryens want to have power over them except for certain events in the dance of the dragons so I think there's a big similarity there. Is it something else I wanted, like you mentioned before, Rickard Stark, the father of Ned Stark, being similar to the old Duke, the father of Leto. I, I think like both of those characters are a great parallel in how they die. Because the old Duke, father of Leto, Paul's grandfather, famously died when he was fighting a bull in the arena as a matador. So the old Duke put himself in danger and put himself in the path of this dangerous monster and died for it. And mm. that's similar to, I guess that's more similar to Brandon Stark, Ned's brother, who went to King's Landing saying, Oi, Rhaegar, come out and die. And Brandon went and faced the Mad King Ares. And then what happened? Like, a Rickard Rick Rickard down. accepts the challenge. He says, I'll fight you. Yeah, right. I can fight one of the Kingsguard, right? And then he yeah. gets burned, of course. <laughs> yeah, so so Rickard, like, like the old Duke, went and faced the monstrous 
Ares, and, and it was a fight that he thought he could win, but but he died as a result of his, you know, confidence and his attempt to win. So, um, so and and I guess that sort of frames like the political conflict of the next generation, like like the grandfather of the hero boldly fought and died and so like the lesson to the to, to the grandson to the hero is well maybe i need to be smarter about this paul and mm-hmm. and the stark kids they both sort of know that you know overconfidence and directness got their fathers and grandfathers killed so like you've got to be smarter and more political to survive and then this brings up who the rivals are that are their main danger to survival in the first place which yeah parallels between lannister and harkonnen are Pretty rich, including their <laughs> vast wealth. Heyo, haha. You see what I did there? And they're absurdly wealthy, both of them, and for the same time scale as applied to the other houses in both settings. So Lannisters have been rich for a crazy long time, and Harkonnens as well. <laughs> so, yeah. You know, both of them. Yeah, I, I, I like the idea, though, that, like, while the Starks and the Atreides are both these very, very ancient houses of this special ancient bloodline, the Lannisters and the Harkonnens are more new money. They are more recent powers. Because the Lannisters, like, they... Casterly Rock is not their ancestral seat. The Lannisters stole Casterly Rock from the Casterlies, Land the Clever, right? And And then they started exploiting the gold mines. So they're new money who used economic activity and trade to get rich. The Harkonnens are the same, because the Harkonnens were, like, cast down and exiled in the Battle of Corrin, but then they recently regained power through, uh, I think the quote is, adroit manipulation of the whale fur market, or whatever the phrase is. Of course that's a thing that you get rich from, because I, of course, we all knew that whales had fur. Oh, I'm wearing my whale fur cloak right now. Um, So... (laughs) So I think it's really interesting that, like, there's sort of this taint of there being something kind of immoral about getting rich from trade, as opposed to just being an honor, like a an ancient family like the Starks and the Atreides. The Lannisters and Harkonnens both made money recently. They are new money. They are the upstarts who are the rivals to the rightful old dynastic family. Which, yeah, I think is really cool. You know, we'll have to come back to one of these partial comparisons because, of course, these aren't all one-to-one comparisons. But I think that the, in terms of actual characters, the best one-to-one comparison we have for a Harkonnen is coming later. So teaser eh, for later in the episode here. That's a, a huge one, especially because another thing I like about that is just how the way it's set up in terms of what they're up against. You're up against in terms of when you're reading Game of Thrones, and not necessarily later when the story expands and you've got a lot more characters and a lot more houses. But when you're focused on Stark and Lannister, you've got this exact same thing. You're a character who's walking into their territory, what they think is their territory, meaning the Red Keep or Arrakis, something that they've had that they're maybe losing their grip on and want to get back. And one of the things about being the Hand is that for a lot of people, it's an opportunity to wield power and wield it unscrupulously, you can make a lot of money at it. And that's kind of a similar thing here. It's not as direct as it is in Dune, where the spice is this just obscenely valuable, do everything substance that obviously control over that is going to mean a lot. Whereas 
even but even for someone like Leto, who's not going to exploit that as much as someone like Harkonnens would to just an extraordinary degree. The same thing is going to be true for Ned Stark, where the main thing he's given is political power and legal power, executive power. And he uses that to almost pick a fight with the Lannisters anyway, because of the small scale capture of Tyrion and false blame placed on him for the attempted murder of Bran. So that part is where things are a little different because the, the Dune, well, maybe you could say that's similar in Dune because didn't the Harkonnen Atreides feud start with some sort of military campaign snafu from long ago that was kind of minor, yeah. but resulted yeah, in a blood the, feud or something like that? The Battle okay, of then, Corrin. Well, Harkonnen was exiled for cowardice after allegations by Atreides, and that's kind of all we know in the front Okay, books. that might be sort of similar to how a relatively small-scale thing turns into a feud between two great houses. Which, by the way, something else I forgot to mention, George has lamented not using the title Duke in A Song of Ice and Fire because Lord and High Lord are just too similar, and he wants a way to distinguish between the, you know, the, the, the great houses. And just calling them Duke would have been would have a simple way to do that, so that would have been a really obvious parallel, too, if he had done that. I think Tywin uh, Lannister would have made a great baron. Yeah, throw a few hundred pounds on him. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I, as, as I think you noted... The Harkonnens and the Lannisters are, well, the enemies of the hero are similar in that Princess Irulan Carino, the, the daughter of the villainous emperor, has blonde hair and green eyes, like how the mm-hmm. Lannisters, Jaime and Cersei, have blonde hair and green eyes. So, so I, I don't know, I, I think that one, you know, the commonality here is that the bad guys are rich and the bad guys are beautiful, whereas the good guys <laughs> are these sort of noble, upright, ancient families who are not as wealthy as well. The, the books both make a point that the Atreides are not one of the super rich houses and the Starks are one of the less rich great houses. So, yeah, strong parallels there. This connects to the anecdote that I, I wasn't sure about that you clarified regarding the, the origin of their feud, which is that the Starks are very well regarded as a military force or their soldiers are highly regarded, etc. And that was true for the Duke, Atreides as well, just the Atreides family in general. And that's something that the Emperor, I suppose, and maybe the Harkonnens as well, are jealous of is his their reputation because, you know, they, they're petty like that. And <laughs> I think that was some extent that's going to be true for some of the relationships within Song of Ice and Fire. Maybe some of them, Stark and Lannister, they're not as direct, I suppose, but they become that way as the feud develops early on. And Dune, I suppose, that feud has existed already for a long time. <laughs> yeah, and, and there's definitely that idea in both stories that, you know, the, the honorable Leto and the honorable Ned are destroyed early on by the conniving enemies, but the legacy of the heroic honorable Leto and Ned lives on. So like in Dune, there's the there's the skull shrine of Leto that becomes this important lasting symbol of the Atreides. And, you know, Ned Stark's bones, like Leto's skull, Ned's bones become this plot point in the books where where the bones are returning oh. to Winterfell and and that's important. And and the bones represent the the legacy of these characters. They may have been defeated, but their ideals live on and continue to inspire people. And, you know, the, the whole Grand Northern Conspiracy plotline shows how the people of the North still want the Starks in Winterfell, similar to how, you know, Leto's legacy and the Atreides' legacy is part of what Paul evokes. 
So they both they both last, and certainly like the protagonists compare themselves to their fathers, and there's always this question of like, can I live up to my father's ideals while also not mm. being defeated as my father was? So yeah, that's great. Yeah, there's a lot of that in the Song of Ice and Fire, but sticking just to this family, it's pretty big because we're seeing, and obviously it's not played out fully, even though he's been dead for a while. The legacy of Tywin Lannister is pretty bad, right? There's yeah, just all these yeah. things are going wrong because he made so many enemies. He he was so ruthless and mistreated so many people, including his own family. But they're not living by his values. People aren't still remembering him the way they do Ned Stark. They're like, oh, now there's an opening He that he's now that he's dead. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a different sort of, it's opportunistic. Now that Tywin's gone, we have the, the Lannisters are weak rather than, oh, Ned is gone. Let's help save his daughter, right? That's a very big difference yeah quick one that i forgot to mention earlier that's a really neat quote is faint within a faint within a faint is a line from dune and wheels within wheels within wheels comes up a couple times in ned's arc <laughs> so yeah i love that it's just that's a pretty clear one i don't think that one's intentional but because it's so subtle but maybe it is because it's so similar, but uh, yeah, I guess we'll probably never know. Yeah, yeah, both stories are very sort of like self-consciously about intricate political plots, and yeah, using that same little pattern is a fun way to highlight that. Thanks for the super chats, by the way. Gunnar, uh, in a super chat, points out that uh, just as the Starks moved from a cold climate into a warmer climate, the Atreides moved from a cooler climate on Caladan to the hot climate on Arrakis, which is cool. And thanks. Yeah. Mora, who says, show of support. Thanks for all the great content. And thanks, Super Rad, who says, Paul Atreides is Azora High. We'll get to that. Good segue point here is the way that their ending happens for both of them, which is when Ned Stark basically has no choice left. He's in prison, he's dying, and he is effectively willing to throw his life away until his daughter is threatened. Varys comes to him and gives him a chance to do that, help his family make his death count for something. And Varys, that's also advancing his goals. It's something that will that Ned will want to do. And on the other side, in Dune, we have Dr. Huey, who also is not necessarily, isn't a loyal person, like, uh, or is a loyal person, not, not unlike Varus, but was nevertheless trusted with some important things. And is Huey's forced into what he's doing because of a threat to his own family. But nevertheless, he's doing a similar thing here, where he's helping someone else get revenge as part of their death. Right, helping, which is kind of part of that legacy thing we were talking about as like a striking from beyond the grave kind of thing that they both have in common as they fade, stayed, exit stage left. Yeah, yeah. So like Varus convinces Ned to falsely confess to treason in order to protect his kids, protect Sansa, and Yui convinces Leto to use the poison tooth to try and kill Vladimir. So yeah, in their darkest hour, they both to protect his wife too. Yeah, 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 right. Yeah, so they so they both sort of die in a way that sort of besmirches their own honor, and they both are visited by a schemer who sort of gives them a chance to make their death mean something. So yeah, huge parallels yeah. there. So how about we move on to um, some of like the political background is really similar in both stories because both worlds have this foundational political balance where there's the supreme king uh, on the iron throne 
or there's in Dune, there's the Emperor on the Lion Throne. The throne is called the Lion Throne in Dune. Iron Throne is called the <laughs> Fire. It. Don't tell me that's a coincidence. Um, <laughs> and and one of the sort of fundamental plot points is that in Dune, Emperor Shaddam doesn't trust and is jealous of Leto Atreides' power, which is similar to how King Ares Targaryen in, in the backstory of Game of Thrones was mistrustful and jealous of everybody. His son, Prince Rhaegar, and his hand, Tywin, and that's part of what sparked the conflict of Robert's Rebellion. And in Dune, we have Lansrod, which is basically uh, an alliance of the great houses, which they're a check against the power of the Emperor. If the Emperor gets out of line, they'll all gang up, and together they're stronger than he is, and it's a way to prevent tyranny, it's a way to create some balance. And that's sort of what was lacking in Westeros. The Targaryens didn't have that check for a long time, but fast forward to the time of Ares and they lost that check because they don't have dragons anymore. But it, it had been some time since they had lost dragons, but no one had really challenged them except for challenges within their own family, if we count things like the Blackfires, but that's, again, a cadet branch of their own. So outside threats didn't really happen until something that was very recent within the time frame of the Song of Ice and Fire. Robert Rebellion is mentioned constantly early on in the Game of Thrones. It's a huge part of the framing for the story and the setting. The Landsrad is basically the Great Houses, and what we see at the beginning of Robert's Rebellion is Ares pushing too hard against the implied feudal vassal relationship, which is that, hey, I'm your king, but if something goes wrong and there's an outside threat, I'll organize everything and get everyone together and stop that threat. And in the meantime, you pay me taxes and bend the knee and all that. But if you just murder me out of hand without any fair justice behind that, well, that's not okay. And in Dune, there's a system against that. They've been around long enough to have fixed that sort of thing. That do system doesn't exist in A Song of Ice and Fire, but it was what people like Rickard and Hoster Tully were trying to create. They yeah. were trying to create more of a check on the royal house. That's the n basic idea of the Southron conspiracy, which is a series of marriages and alliances that would keep Ares from doing anything too much yeah. for the royal house going you know thinking beyond Ares once he's eventually gone and Rhaegar was basically behind that and of course that's kind of what's too bad about the fact that it came to war and Robert killed Rhaegar because Rhaegar would have probably been a reasonable one to work with but as it turned out Ares ignited all that and the story went the way it did and that's very similar to what happens in Dune except that it's happening during the story instead of maybe 15 years prior so Obviously, there's going to be some differences here and there between these parallels and how they're used within the story, but that's pretty cool to see these parallels. Yeah. I wanted to add with that idea of like the, the Southern ambitions, Great Houses and Rhaegar all plotting to get together and to put checks to reduce Ares's power, like that line that Rhaegar has before he goes into battle that Jamie remembers, where it's like, a council will be called, changes will be made. That was yeah. 
that was Rhaegar's attempt to try and change things. And I think it's really similar to how Paul, I think it's Paul talks about the Landsrad, you know, we need a, I could bring evidence to the Landsrad that Emperor Shaddam tried to destroy uh, the Atreides with Sardaukar. And when we sort of present that to the Landsrad council, then we'll be able to reduce Shaddam's power. Like that's a very, very similar idea that, and, and in both cases, it doesn't work. It doesn't happen that the houses don't uh, get together to, to stop Shaddam. It's it's Paul's doing and the Fremen's doing. And Rhaegar and the Southern Ambitions Alliance fails to put checks on Ares. So so there's a, there's a failure of like sort of political due process that causes the heroes to have to go and solve the problems instead. And then almost a similar thing happens with Ned's arc as well, where he's trying to create or gather enough evidence to present to Robert. But... Th- it all becomes irrelevant because Robert just dies and it's sketchy whether Robert would have or Robert would have done about it as well. So, <laughs> yeah, it's neat how this is a diver- almost a diversionary tactic than these uh, storylines that both authors like to use rather than just engaging in more straightforward tropes. They sort of set it up one way and then kind of take a right turn. Maybe maybe a second right turn after that. I, I think there's a sense in both stories that like you know they both are these medieval-ish, feudal-ish political systems, and they both fail to stop their tyrannical leaders, King Ares, Emperor Shaddam. Both feudal systems are failing, and so like there's there's a sense in both stories that we need to change this system. Like we need to dramatically change this monarchical feudal system because it's it's creating injustice and it's creating horrors and so a, a big part of what the dune series is about is is exploring different political systems and and changing things to make a, a better universe and i'm really curious about what a song of ice and fire will do like it's interesting that at the end of the game of thrones tv show we have king bran in charge of westeros and the show never really explores what that means or like why why is it a good thing for King Bran to be in charge? <laughs> but I think that, you know, we anticipate that if it is that Bran becomes king in the yet-to-be-published Game of Thrones books, I think it'll explore, like, you know, how King Bran will be a different political system and how it will be better to avoid the horrors of the past. But I, we can talk more about King Bran and Dune uh, a bit later on. I, at the moment, we're doing like no spoilers or light spoilers for Dune in this live stream. But later on in the live stream, we will talk more about spoilers and we'll warn you when we do talk about any big spoilers for Dune. Yes, the God Emperor of Westeros is coming later. That's right. Shall <laughs> we talk about Jessica and Catelyn? We should indeed, because they are another good set of related parallels. Starting with just some obvious physical features, like they're both redheads and they're the wife or concubine in Jessica's case, but very functionally very similar of this doomed father figure type. And Catelyn is a doomed mother figure. Jessica, not so much. It's not not really the same in that sense. So that's a that's a divergence, which is uh, nice to see as well. And they're both someone that had to really adjust to a new living situation, right? They are not from the place that they have to settle and have children. Catelyn's not from the North. Jessica's not from Caladan. And that parallels within each other the stories that we just set up, whereas Ned goes into 
a very unfamiliar situation to be handed to the king. And Duke Leto goes into a very similar situation going from Caladan to Arrakis, which is very unfamiliar, both in terms of, well, in terms of everything. <laughs> it's just really unfamiliar <laughs> geographically, politically, and, and, you know, all that. Yeah. I think it's interesting that, you know, while Ned Stark and Leto Atreides are sort of the idealized father, where, like, the children have nothing but love and respect for their father in both Dune and A Song of Ice and Fire, the the mother, you know, Catelyn and Jessica are not as idealized, and I think they have more complicated relationships with some of their children. I mean, John especially, obviously, has a really complicated relationship with Catelyn, who is not his mother yeah. and who rejects him. E- even, like, Arya, I think, has, you know, a, a somewhat more difficult relationship with with Catelyn. I, I mean, there are certain revelations about Jessica and Dune that complicate her relationship with Paul as well. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but, but I think it's interesting that, like, it, it, it's definitely... A, I think it's a more complicated and a more layered relationship with the mother as opposed to the father ned and later who are who are idolized by their children yeah and that's true there's it is more complicated and i think the fact that there's also more children in the song of ice and fire setting complicates it as well because they do have varying relationships i mean you use john as an example that's obviously a stark example because of the relationship with catelyn but then there's more straightforward examples like rob and then there's Arya, who arguably has a better relationship with Ned than with Catelyn, and, and Sansa, who is probably the reverse of that. Whereas Paul is obviously not the only child, but kind of effectively the only child in the first book, and that's a big deal, and changes, especially in, in a power dynamic like they have with, with heirs and, and bloodlines and all that. A, a similarity is that both Jessica and Catelyn are very much motivated by wanting to protect their children but at the same time wanting to advance their children politically. Jessica, you know, more so than in the movies, Jessica in the books very much wants Paul to be restored to the leadership of House Atreides and to be politically powerful. And and Catelyn, Catelyn in the books more than in the TV show, wants her children, wants Rob to be the Lord, to be restored to ruling their homeland. They're both politically ambitious. And, like, it, it very much explores how... There's a tension between wanting to love and protect your children, but also wanting them to have political power. Because, of course, having political power is dangerous. So, you know, if you if you love your children, should you want them to be lords and kings? Because that's dangerous. And that's a tension that I, I think both of these stories explore. And that is the heart of one of the most direct detailed parallels I think we might have between these two characters, which is the core plot for both of them very early on is Catelyn trying to figure out who killed Bran and Jessica trying to figure out how Paul was almost killed. Plus, there's a Chris knife and a dagger with a dragon bone hilt, which is of Lyrian steel. And <laughs> these are both key parts of that. And you have a, a secret message from Margot Fenring at least in the book version, uh, with a secret code written that only in, in a way that only Jessica can understand because she's been a Jesserit, and there's a warning about the Harkonnens. Meanwhile, Lysa, in a language that only Catelyn can understand, warns her about the Lannisters. Now, this is a false warning, but still, it's the same kind of thing where it's an early plot point where they get this message 
that steers their actions in a very direct and important way. And uh, it's related to threats on not just them, but their children specifically. And yeah. said advancement or lack thereof that you mentioned. So that, yeah, it's really, really huge similarity there. Even though there's, those plots have huge differences as well, these similarities are like, oh, yeah, that's, yeah, I see that. <laughs> Once you see them anyway. Yeah, yeah, they, they both investigate the attempted murder murder of their son. They both have a special knife as a key piece of evidence. They both get a warning from a woman in a coded message. I, I, I mean, surely George had Dune in mind when he wrote this. And, and, and you know, you, you note that Lysa's warning to Catelyn is a political ploy from Littlefinger trying to manipulate Catelyn because Littlefinger's trying to turn the Starks and the Lannisters against each other. But but I think in a similar way we can question Margot Fenring's motivations when she sends that coded message to Jessica in the Dune book. Because, you know, we know that the Fenrings are connected to the Emperor Shaddam and we know that the Fenrings are working with the Bene Gesserit and, and Jessica's goals are not entirely aligned with the Bene Gesserit. So I, I think that the complicated relationship between Catelyn and Lysa is similar to the complicated relationship between Jessica and the Bene Gesserit and Margot, for sure. Okay, right on. Yeah, I guess I didn't catch that part, but now that you lay it out, I'm like, oh yeah, okay. There's definitely, like, like deeper, more complicated politics and, like, factional issues with Jessica than with Catelyn. But we've always got to remember that, you know, Catelyn is not born a Stark. Catelyn is a Tully. And Catelyn is connected to the Arryns through her sister. And so, you know, Catelyn has these political and cultural and religious differences from Ned and the Starks, which, which complicate her relationship with her partner. Yeah, and they were both of their marriages were very directly related to the plotting of yeah. prior generations. Catelyn's marriage to not just Ned, but it was originally going to be Brandon Stark because that marriage was so important that they passed it down to the next son. And similarly, Jessica's marriage to Duke Leto was... A lot of people had an interest in that, but particularly, I guess, the Bene Gesserit most of all, right? Would that be accurate to, to say? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the yeah, that, that marriage of... Well, not marriage, but that partnership of Jessica and Leto is part of the Bene Gesserit breeding program to try and create the Kwisatz Haderach. So it's really cool that that both Jessica and Leto's relationship and Catelyn and Ned's relationship, they are both relationships that started for political reasons, but they both blossomed into true love, which is really lovely. And people say these stories are grimdark, you know, but and I guess they these these characters did have bad endings, but they got to have nice long lives, at least partially. They got to have some time in the sun. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, sort of. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, it's important that like the, the hero protagonist characters get to see this model of like idealized true love in their parents before it is lost. So in the same way that the heroes like Paul and Jon Snow, that they ask themselves, you know, can I be as honorable as my father? They also ask themselves, can I have a true love like my, like, you know, Ned had with Catelyn and like Jessica had with Leto? Like it, it establishes those ideals of love and heroism for the protagonist to strive for and struggle for as the story goes on. And George likes to invert that, where we also have a character, Tyrion and Jamie and Cersei too. They're showing us the opposite, showing us yeah, the mirror yeah. 
that by their leg. They're constantly thinking about their father, and it's not a good thing. <laughs> it's usually, it's like, oh, it makes me feel bad, you know, or it's, uh, well, my father would have done this, and it's something awful, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Just as Jamie, Cersei, and Tyrion grapple with their shitty father, Tywin's legacy, we see how Irulan has to grapple with her monstrous father, Shaddam's legacy, and, you know, Fade mm. has to deal with the Baron Vladimir's legacy, and it's there's sort of a tragedy that these people who were born into these who are the children of villainous fathers. Like, they don't necessarily want to follow in their villainous father's footsteps. Tyrion doesn't necessarily want to be like Tywin. Irulan doesn't necessarily want to be like Shaddam, but there is, like, this sense of inevitability about following in your parents' footsteps and just the political realities, you know? So there's... That there's there's much about like legacy and family and bloodline and power that that both of these stories explore. And that's what kind of why I brought up Tyrion because he's specifically the one that points out that we are the puppets that dance on the strings of those that came before us. Because that's that's yeah, you know, a nice succinct George way to say that. And maybe maybe George got that line from Shakespeare or something because that's another major influence of his. <laughs> along with along with Dune. G- George has some great line about how his chief influences are William Shakespeare and Stanley Marvel Comics, which, which <laughs> is wonderful. So our next parallel is uh, the scheming and devious Peter de Vries, uh, the Mentat assassin who serves the Harkonnens, is very similar to Littlefinger, Peter Baelish, the political schemer. In the small council. Yes, indeed. We have, first of all, a, a fun world building aspect, Dune, that is Mentat. And there is not a direct equivalent, really, in A Song of Ice and Fire, I suppose. But there is the example of someone who's just really good at math. And that alone puts them above everyone else, which is a similar role within the story, especially because these are very unscrupulous people. They're not fully in charge of their own destiny. They have to work for someone else. They're both small. Obviously, the name is similar. I'm sure you noticed that one already. They One of them has the pointed chin. The other has a chin beard. They're Everybody knows they're not trustworthy, but they're so useful that they are allowed to stick around. Well, there's something I, I find like something that recurs again. Like we talked about how the Harkonnens and the Lannisters are both villainous and they're both associated with money and wealth. And in a similar way, like like Peter DeVries and and Peter, like Littlefinger has this financial acumen. I mean, I guess Peter DeVries is not associated with money per se, but he's he's like a devious, smart, mathematically inclined person. And there's there's sort of the villainy of being a manipulative nerd, which um which yeah is is huge with both these characters. And we have what their ambitions are. Yeah, which is. Lusting after these two characters we just compared, Catelyn and Jessica, the redheads that had all these other things in common with each other. So that, just by extension, creates a lot more parallels. Yeah, the, the, they both, like, Piter and Littlefinger are both the, like, nerdy, angry, bitter, spurned underdog who wants power and wants the hot redhead. And they both get tantalizingly close to having it, but they don't quite get there, which, yeah, is really cool. And both of them, I think, parallels and contrasts to a more heroic mentor. So, Maester Lewin is the wise teacher of the Stark kids, and, and he's, 
you know, this really nice, well-intentioned guy, even if he's completely wrong about magic. And similarly, Thufir Hawat, the Mentat, is like the good guy version. I mean, he's not really a good guy, but he's like the the mm. more heroic version of Peter de Vries, who is the beloved mentor of Paul. So we, we get like a a good wise man figure in Lewin and Thufir, and we get an evil conniving smart man in Peter and Peter. That's pretty cool. And we even have a little bit of them working for the other side by force. Lewin had to work for Theon when the, when they were yeah. taken over by the Ironborn. That's a pretty small part of his arc, but it is, you know, that's how he goes out. Yeah, uh, that's a great yeah. point. The 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 <laughs> wise, the heroic wise man that they both get captured by the bad guys and and they both advise the bad guys lewin advises theon honestly and wisely and thufia advises the harkonnens in a slightly more yeah, complicated what way. he does <laughs> and 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 of course you know we we can note that thufia is a much more nasty evil dude than, than lewin is because thufia oh, yeah. is after all a mentat assassin and his job is murdering people and you know there's, there's, <laughs> yeah. there's, there's some fun lines in the books about how the harkonnens fear thufia Hawat because he's just this implacable enemy who just absolutely will gut the harkonnens at every opportunity so uh there, there's yeah <laughs> Uh, Dune, Dune is uh, it does lean harder into um, vi- the villainy of even the heroes because, of course, Dune is about deconstructing the idea of heroism and questioning the idea of heroism. But um, I'm sure we'll discuss that more later. Yeah, the better comparison for a lot of what Thufir can do is like Blood Raven. You know, <laughs> yeah. he's the the highly feared questionable methods like powers that maybe he shouldn't have you know kind of thing <laughs> yeah true yeah i mean i i think that's like the fun thing is that like you know littlefinger thinks that he's the master manipulator but then like a level above him it's more like oh no illyrio is the master manipulator and then you're like oh no wait blood raven is the master manipulator who's above them and then you know hell maybe quaith is up there as well so um yeah, the, the, there's levels to it. In, in a way that I don't think Dune quite... Oh, well, no, I mean, Dune does have sort of levels as as the series goes on. I won't spoil it, but, you know, after Paul, there are there are other gigabrain mega people who are, you know, it's sort of... There's this power creep in Dune where there's like a new super powerful person in each book practically. So, you know, there's... It, the, the scale expands both stories i yeah. suppose and there is a sense in a song of ice and fire that like the tide of magic is rising you know dragons are reborn mm. white walkers are returning this is an age for gods and heroes i like the idea that euron Greyjoy is emerging as like a new next level supernatural threat so i guess both stories have this sort of power creep this this increase in stakes and scale that increases as the story goes on yeah i that's that's a good way to put it it starts off as a squabble between two houses and the royal house yeah overshadowing it all and then expands to include a lot more houses and interests and supernatural slash high-tech aspects and goes from there yeah so Uh, much yeah and i think that the scale and complexity increases so much that the respective authors lose control of their stories because you know i i won't spoil it but you know dune the ending of dune is, is almost explicitly a moment where the author kind of explicitly says oops 
I, my story gone has gotten far. out of my control. <laughs> I've gone too far. There's all these crazy characters doing wacky things, and I'm not really sure what's going on, to be entirely honest. <laughs> and uh, like, like that, that is the end of Chapter House. And whereas A Song of Ice and Fire, George, I don't think, has quite admitted it to himself yet, but I think the reason why the A Song of Ice and Fire series is unfinished is largely because... George has introduced too many characters and plot lines and the scale has increased and the complexity has increased and he's no longer quite in control of his own story. So I think that there's a very strong like meta similarity in how Frank and George both sort of lost control of their rapidly expanding universes. I agree that and especially 20, 30 years from now, some of these parallels will seem even more stark or more direct, or maybe not. Maybe some of them will look less so, depending on how next 10, 15 years actually go. But yeah, it's so true, especially as well, the arc of, of getting things made into TV shows and their own personal influences. I know we, we had a few notes on that in terms of just like things that they've done where Dune has a lot of parallels to the wars in the Middle East over oil or the drug wars, whereas The Song of Ice and Fire has allegories to climate change and these aren't necessarily oh yeah i definitely did this george isn't george has said that he didn't do that on purpose it, you can he's he's also said you it, it absolutely works for that but it doesn't really even matter in terms of authorial intent if we're just talking about what's there and what isn't and so they both have you can see the products of from their own time and things that were important during their era when they were writers and all that which I think is always a fun thing to deconstruct and look at yeah i mean it's fascinating that they both are of their time and yet the stories are so similar despite coming from such different times. I mean, the Dune books were published uh, first in the 60s and Song of Ice and Fire was, you know, some 30 years later in the 90s. And yet they are so similar. And, and I think that's because, like, I, I think that both Dune and Song of Ice and Fire, that they are responding more to fantasy literature and, like, tropes more so than they are responding to, like, current events. Like mm. Dune, Dune is very much about. I, I mean, they both draw from history as well. You know, Frank Herbert enormously was influenced by, you know, Sabres of Paradise and yeah. Lawrence of Arabia, and you know, Song of Ice and Fire is very much about Wars, Wars of the Roses and stuff. So, like, I, I think they they both draw more from history and from literature and from you know tropes and common stories than they do from their current time necessarily i mean i mean george r martin is writing the winds of winter in the year 2023 but he but the winds of winter is not about the year 2023 the winds of winter is more about the you know 80s when when george martin was coming up you know and george has said as much in interviews that he he's george is not writing about 2023 politics in a song of ice and fire he's more responding to history and more universal cultural ideas that's something that interests him more in in general the things that he reads about like he grew up reading history and you know he has painted figurines of knights and he loves you know lord of the rings is a one of his biggest influences so that that sort of thing history repeating itself the cycles of history and ancient world or the medieval world that is more his jam even though he's written substantial amounts of both he has a pretty wide catalog he's written a lot of sci-fi and he did that before he wrote Song of Ice and Fire, which is probably where he gets some of that ability to use different notes within a familiar story, which helps be more unique. Uh, I think that adds to it overall, I'd say. Yeah, I, I think both George and Frank are writing as much in response to Beowulf and the Iliad as they are to the politics of their contemporary time. 
that they're really reaching for something more universal. And and I think that's part of why these series have so much longevity. Like Dune is a book that is being read and enjoyed some 60 years after its publication. And, and A Song of Ice and Fire, I, I suspect, will be read for a long time as well. Because, yeah, they're both reaching for something universal rather than chasing any kind of like current current trend or whatever i wonder how much they have in common regarding doing psychedelic drugs <laughs> the yeah. question must be asked <laughs> yeah drugs are definitely a theme in both stories and in both authors lives yeah right like i know herbert experimented with psychedelic maybe more than experimented with I, i'm not quite as clear on george but he's a huge fan of the grateful dead you know deadhead and that subculture and yeah i mean he doesn't have children so <laughs> there's nothing really stopping him you know so yeah and with the the werewood visions and the way he writes things like that it might pay off to have some experience if you're going to write prophecies and visions to maybe had a few of your own <laughs> yeah yeah because obviously spice is the powerful drug that's at the heart of dune and there's also other drugs like sappho and samuta in dune a Song of Ice and Fire, the drugs aren't as obvious, but you have drugs like the Shade of the Evening, which Daenerys takes before her visions, and Euron also drinks Shade of the Evening. And interestingly, Shade of the Evening stains your lips a dark blue, dark purple, dark indigo, which is similar to how the Mentats have their lips stained red by the drugs that they take. And the indigo yeah. of Shade of the Evening might be a bit like the blue of the spice in Dune. Like that one, yeah. And the... Whatever brand drinks, that thing that is debatedly Jojen paste or not seems to trigger yeah. a bunch of visions as well. So there's that. As well as dream wine apparently can maybe cause some visions. I know there's that famous scene where Jamie has his vision, his dream with Brienne underneath Casterly Rock and King's Garden and all that, the ghosts in blue and white. He's under the influence of dream wine and fever, and he's got his head resting on a weirwood stump so <laughs> you know you've got multiple factors there too shall we talk about the baron the and illyrio mapatis the conniving fat man at the uh at the heart of the story pulling strings let's do it this was the the character i mentioned that isn't a Lannister, you know, isn't a Lannister within the story in terms of Illyrio, but has the characteristics of a Harkonnen, which you know, earlier we made the Harkonnen-Lannister parallels. Both of these large men have rings on every finger, and my favorite parallel here in terms of their way they move is that Illyrio is unusually light on his feet, and the in-world description for that, or reason for that, is that he's a former water dancer. Whereas the Baron is also unusually light on his feet, and that's because of the suspensors. That's not unusual, I guess, it's just would look unusual when you're seeing it for the first time. Now, if you if you watched all the various TV shows and movies, usually have him floating. But I think in the book, it's more of a just a, a large a lot of help. But maybe I'm wrong about that. I don't recall exactly. Either way, it's very similar in that sense. Yeah, I, I think that as you say, yeah, I think in the Dune book, the Baron doesn't so much levitate and fly. He more is just held up partly by the suspenses to make him lighter so he's it, it's almost like comical the way he's described as like this big fat baby who sort of drifts and <laughs> hops across the ground lightly as though he's walking on the moon or something and it's like the 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 villain the villain dune movies make the baron a lot more sort of serious and dark and a lot more dignified whereas in the book the baron is this more ridiculous 
comical, over-the-top, talkative, also like a sort of like negative gay sex criminal stereotype thing. There's sort of this homophobic element in Dune in parts of it. But yeah, the the Baron is 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 more sort of ridiculous and over the top in the books. And yeah, definitely similar to Illyrio. Because Illyrio, like similar to Vladimir in the books, the Baron in the books, they both love the sound of their own voice. And they both talk, 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 talk. And, and they both have these secrets that they blab about a little bit too much. The Baron, there's a couple of moments in the books where the Baron says something and gives away something. And then he's like, oh, why did I say that? I shouldn't have given that away. <laughs> um, and in, I think, the same way, like in Illyrio's conversations with Tyrion, Illyrio says things about, oh, you know, I have debts of affection to repay. And, you know, a dragon is still a dragon. And he has all these little lines where he sort of, he, he can't help himself, but sort of hint at his grand scheme, which I think is part of what, what leads or will lead to their undoing so yeah the but the possible connection parallel to that is Arya overhearing Varys and Illyrio plotting under the Red Keep and you know that's not them blabbing because they have a very reasonable expectation that no one's listening but it you know creates a similar thing where something gets leaked in a way that the audience can see kind of straightforwardly I, I think it's interesting how both characters use words like the Baron Vladimir it, it explicitly like Frank was obsessed with language and and how language can be used and misused and so there's times like you know the Baron says oh I promised that I won't kill Jessica and Paul so therefore I won't kill Jessica and Paul I will just leave them in the desert and the desert will kill Jessica and Paul so it's a sort of like <laughs> ridiculous like semi-truth and I feel like Illyrio plays with language in similar ways I can't think of a direct example but Illyrio's Illyrio and Varys definitely like play with like language and appearances Varys is of course a mummer, you know, he, he, he's a playwright, he takes on disguises and he, and he uses things that are technically true but not quite, so I think there's similarities there as well. Two examples that come to mind from Illyrio is, is one where he twists Tyrion around regarding the poisonous mushrooms and it kind of manipulates him that way and try to tricks him into showing him, you do want to live, see? I proved it to you by presenting you with the yeah. choice. And another one maybe is the way he... Ikido's his way past Viserys's temper tantrums. Like, take me for a fool? And he's like, oh, I take you for a king, because kings lack the caution of common men. He, turn, he just is very smooth at turning an insult into a compliment, you know? And a lot of that is just the way Viserys took it in the first place. So, yeah, I agree. They're both very good talkers, and they talk a lot. And Tyrion thinks about that, how he just wants... He, the more Illyrio talks and the more he drinks, he's... Maybe more careful than the Baron, but he does let a few things out that Tyrion's able to get a sense of a lot of things. Tyrion figures out that this that they're up to something. He he figures out that that young Griff is more important to him than he's letting on, which has led to all these Blackfire theories and and him being his father, and more suspicions about the, his connection to Varys and all these other things that help set up the Blackfire plot, the young Griff plot, whatever you want to call it. And that, yeah, that feels pretty similar here. Yeah, well, you, I mean, you mentioned young Griff. I, I think that Illyrio, Illyrio has this conspicuous fondness for the handsome young boy, young Griff, which I think is similar to how the Baron Vladimir has a conspicuous fondness for the handsome young boy, Fade Rautha, 
and you know Fade Rautha and Young Griff are both talented well maybe not talented but they're, but they're both like young trained warriors and they both have nice hair and they, and they both are moody teenagers like Fade Rautha and Young Griff yeah. are both like these impetuous <laughs> teenagers who have these sort of temper tantrums and they sort of they sort of are learning to be smart like they they are being trained by their villainous conspiratorial mentor they're being trained to be a political player but they are not as good of a political player like fade Rauther is not as good at scheming as the baron vladimir and young griff is not as good at scheming as Illyrio. and that's how Tyrion is able to mess with young griff and convince him to go west and all of that so um so you know, I I, yeah. I don't I don't I don't think that Illyrio is like sexually interested in Young Griff in the way that the Baron Vladimir is sexually interested in Fader Alpha. But I think there's definitely like a similarity to their to their close relationship and that sort of mentor relationship, and and how Young Griff and Fader Alpha they both I think are unworthy scions. You know, like <clears throat> the Baron has invested all this time and energy into putting Fade Rauther into power and Illyrio's put all this time and energy into putting Young Griff into power. But we we can plainly see that Fade Rauther and Young Griff are both not worthy to be rulers because they're, they're not both... as good as the alternatives. Yeah, that's a super great point. Yeah, they both explore like they both are manufactured heroes, Fade Rauther and Young Griff. They both have been carefully created and and groomed to take power, but that it just doesn't that just isn't a good idea in either situation ironically they created the better alternative through their actions by sending them into situations where they weren't expected to survive they weren't coddled and protected all throughout their whole lives even though they were given a great education and Varys goes on with that speech to kevin about how oh Aegon has been scared he knows what it's like to fix nets and swim in a river and do all these all this like common born stuff and but that's nothing next to what Danny has gone through right Danny's gone through way more than that Danny's gone through legitimately feared for her life she was sold as a slave she was you know taken by a dothraki call and seen horrible things in war already at a young age whereas young griff didn't see any of that and the same with paul Faye didn't see any of those things he didn't go through like true hardships he may have had tough training sessions and sweated out you know a lot of calories while in the gym <laughs> you know i'm sure his <laughs> muscles were large but <laughs> he wasn't like shaped by the desert like danny and paul were and and fought with the the fremen or with the dothraki which are a bit of a parallel here at least at least in this particular context where it's just really hard living and it makes you tough if you survive it and neither of them were expected to survive and because they did they're a better stavier slash leader figure than this engineered version that was basically grown in a lab if you want to use that metaphor that's the plan that's being foisted here you have a baron who has this beast rabbin to be a bad ruler that everybody hates he's doing this on purpose in order to later replace him with his beloved engineered alternative in fade which is exactly what illyrio and varas are trying to do by sending viserys leading dothraki to Westeros and then have their guy come in and be the savior against that and thus come out ahead and be beloved for his being such a hero. So it's it's super similar in that regard, of course. And, you know, obviously there's huge differences. If we were to sit here and list all the differences, there'd be huge differences as well. But these similarities are are stark and, and crazy and cool. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I, yeah, I, that that is a similarity that is so specific that I think it almost has to be George copying Frank Herbert because, yeah, Illyrio sending Young Griff to replace Awful Viserys is the, is the same goddamn idea as <laughs> the Baron sending Fade to replace the Awful Raban. It, it's, it's the same plan, and it's such a specific plan. Uh, so, yeah, I, I love it. Love it, yeah. So and of course there's I wonder if I think Illyrio isn't rich from rich from whale fur but he does trade and you know he did get rich from I mean that origin stuff is kind of similar and he lo- he eats like crazy and yeah yeah <laughs> yeah they both love food and money and luxury and and that that sort of indulgence is all yeah coding for a sort of villainous vibe so yeah huge similarities and they both are slavers Illyrio has yeah. slaves and right. the Harkonnens have slaves and so they both use and abuse people, and that's part of their villainy. And 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 yeah, like it's it's that whole idea of you know Illyrio creating and installing Young Griff, and Vladimir installing Fader Alpha. It, it's that idea of you you can't manufacture true worthy heroism. You can't be born into true worthy heroism. You can only get it by experience and work and intention and hardship and that's what paul and daenerys represent and that's how both stories criticize monarchy and and feudalism it's that idea that any kind of power passed down through generations is is just a deeply flawed system even when the good guys wield it yeah right like even they can't avoid a lot of the problems that come inherent to the system yeah you're not born into power you have to earn power and that's what the heroes do in both stories that's part of john we didn't even mention john snow that's a big part of him as well uh, whether or not no matter how his end goes he has gone through a lot to gain power or to have been placed over other people to have the responsibility of leadership he he first went through legitimate dangers and, and survived legitimate things and, and suffered and, and a lot of that so yeah aria she's not necessarily gonna be a leader but she's gone through a lot Ansa is is probably going to be a leader. Been through a lot, right? And yeah, <laughs> it's it's a recurring. They're all going through legitimate experience rather than something that's that's cultured or done behind closed doors. Someone in the live chat points out that the second Dune book has a has a quirky, funny dwarf called Bajaz, which is similar to Tyrion, is often playing word games and being funny and provocative i I think there are some similarities between bajaz and Tyrion. it's a great point i'm surprised i missed that yeah obvious now that you mention it yeah that's a good one and george has had several dwarf characters i i remember the the authors of the expanse daniel abraham and ty frank were saying that george martin like the 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 expanse sci-fi story started as a tabletop role-playing game with daniel and and george and others as players and and george's character in this role-playing game was a was a dwarf character with Ah. a really ridiculous name uh that i can't remember off the top of my head but yeah dwarves that's amazing i knew about the campaign stuff i didn't know george's character was a dwarf though that part's new to me that's great (laughs) yeah yeah george has a has a thing for dwarfs apparently shall we talk a little more about daenerys and paul because they both are these you know scions of ancient powerful houses who lose their birthright and they both wander the desert and they both learn to survive in a different environment and they learn 
to live with locals, the Dothraki and the Fremen. What, what other similarities are there? This is a really strong one, and it's, it's nicely led into from this, this plotting of before where we talked about who the real hero figures are, the ones who have really had strong and tough upbringings. That's probably the most overarching similarity between them is that they are inheritors of huge, important bloodline at a really hugely important time. And they both have prophetic visions. Both have, like you said, they're going out into the desert and survive that. And out in the desert, they interact with and co come to lead an extremely powerful local regional group, like the Dothraki slash the Fremen in this case who are extremely formidable. Like the Fremen, of course, are a much, much, much older culture. They're much more highly developed. The Dothraki are, are more of just straightforward warrior culture in its, in, in its first few hundred years or maybe a little later. It's, it's kind of unclear when they actually started, but they definitely aren't anywhere near as old as the Fremen. Though the Dothraki don't tame, you know, dragons, Daenerys does, and that's obviously a, a parallel to the Shai Hulud and the riding of sandworms, which very few people do, just like very few people ride dragons in the history of A Song of Ice and Fire. And they both have a, a family member with them when they when they're go out into exile. Of course, Danny has an incompetent, poor influence on her <laughs> in, in Viserys, whereas Paul has Jessica, who is extremely capable, like the exact opposite of Viserys's level of competence and level of education and mental fortitude and everything. I mean, they're, they're about as opposite as it gets here. <laughs> and the pregnancy part is similar, too, because you have, you have Paul being... Or Paul obviously isn't pregnant, but Jessica is, and then Danny is pregnant, and it's with someone who's passed recently within the story. Yeah, it's interesting that, like, Daenerys, I, I think, has this intense loneliness because she's a Targaryen alone in the world. And as you say, Viserys is not a good... <laughs> family member. <laughs> and, and Paul, in contrast, Paul has his mother by his side. He has a, a family member watching his back, which is great. But, but I guess Paul's isolation comes more from his prescience and his visions and all these experiences that are going on in his head. That, that, that's sort of what isolates Paul. And yeah, as you say, they both have these prophetic visions and this sense of destiny uh, that drives them. And there's we, we can talk more about prescience later, but it's something that is both empowering and, and it's also dangerous. And, and there's also a question like, you know, part of the books is that Paul, the way, the way Paul treats the Fremen is exploitative, is, is sort of part of the point. And, and, you know, we can question, is it right the way that Daenerys uses the Dothraki? And that's something that I guess we will see more of in the next books. You're right, because that is obviously a huge question for Paul, and, and just not just how he leads the Fremen, but how he wields power in general, which will also be a question with Daenerys. And they both will have to battle uh, Messiah complexes. Like, Danny is having these thoughts about, you know, I'm, I'm lonely, I have all this power to be responsible with this power, but it can be overwhelming. I mean, she we've seen her once or twice already maybe lose her temper and do something that she probably shouldn't have done in terms of morality, her own morality. It would violate some you know, things that she has said previously she wouldn't do or wouldn't want to do. And that's what we've been talking about since the beginning, the use of power. And this is where we're going to talk about Paul and Bran in a minute, and this is where those things diverge. Danny did not have good examples of wielding power well. She had Viserys, 
And when she thinks of her father, that's the Mad King. Like, that's not a good example. And it's, it's a good thing that she wasn't raised by him. But the, her one maybe decent example is Rhaegar, who never actually was king. And she yeah. didn't know him. Khal Drogo? Like, she falls in love with this guy kind of because he's the only pr- strong presence within her world. The first person that, like, treated her halfway decently, even though he also, you know, married a 13-year-old or whatever she was, which is pretty sketchy. So. That's the what just goes to show what counts as good treatment in her world. Whereas Bran, when we talk about him, that's what's going to be more similar to Paul. Like Paul had a, a, a pretty good upbringing. He had great education. He was treated well, and he had a lot of people helping him learn, which is similar to more similar to Bran. But we'll hold off on that for the for the moment. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a great point. Like Paul had every advantage and every luxury and all the training and knowledge in the world when he was growing up. Whereas Daenerys had nothing. She basically grew up on the streets. So I think Daenerys Daenerys had a lot of obstacles and hardships that Paul didn't. Paul has advantages over her. I think there's another similarity in that, you know, like Paul and the Fremen and like Daenerys and Slaver's Bay, they, they both are characters who come into these foreign lands and these foreign cultures and they tell they tell these foreign cultures what to do. Paul says, hey, Fremen, you should follow me against Shaddam and not, you should fight in the weirding way. And Daenerys comes to Slaver's Bay and she's like, hey, you guys should stop slaving and you guys should treat the people differently. And she tries to totally upend the social order of this foreign culture. And there's lots of like complicated ideas about whether or not that's a good idea. Both stories have been accused of being a white savior story. Like I remember, was it the end of Game of Thrones season three when Daenerys liberates Astapor or is it Marine and there's that scene yeah, where all the of crowd the... surfing scene yeah <laughs> yeah Daenerys surfs the crowds and it's like this very like visually striking thing where all of these like yeah. darker skinned people are worshipping this white skinned person who has just come to save them and so and so so both stories have been accused of being a white savior story and you know I, I think the I think the point of Dune is that it's about how Paul is a false messiah and it's about how it is a bad idea and it is wrong how Paul exploits the Fremen. Whereas I think A Song of Ice and Fire has not quite... That storyline has not concluded. We don't really know how Daenerys will resolve the situation in Slaver's Bay. And I'm really curious how it will end. Like, will it end with, you know, Slaver's Bay is like, wow, thanks for fixing our culture, Daenerys. You sure told us a superior <laughs> set of morals and cultural norms to follow. That's great. That, that's sort of what happens in the Game of Thrones TV show, where Daenerys inexplicably leaves Dario Bloody Naharis in charge of Slaver's Bay. <laughs> yeah, that's like, and like, we're, 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 we're sort of meant to believe that Slaver's Bay is fixed now. And it's like, really? And again, like George says, he doesn't write allegory, but like there's obvious parallels to you know, Western invasions of the Middle East and, you know, Afghanistan and Iraq and some of those situations not turning out so well. So I'm really curious how the Daenerys and Slavers Bay storyline will resolve and whether it will turn out to have been a good idea for Daenerys to try to take over and reform Slavers Bay. Yeah, and that's something they definitely have that is related. Both been pushed aside from their claim or their, their rightful title. But they both also have a supernatural destiny. They're like a chosen one type figure. Paul's kind of an engineered birth by, you know, manipulation over a long period of time, trying to create the, the perfect conditions or whatever. And Danny 
it's not quite that explicit, but she's the mother of dragons. She's the one that brought dragons back after all this time. And she had these visions in the first book of ancestors with pale swords and encouraging her to wake the dragon and all this stuff. So absolutely similar child of destiny stuff. And that's why this forks into Bran a bit, because he also has a lot of that as well as John. So Paul is kind of way, Paul is kind of Danny, Bran, and John wrapped into one with maybe even some of the other characters, maybe even some Sansa thrown in there too. I don't know. <laughs> it's hard to say, but there's a lot of these because some of these things as we said at the beginning, they, some of these are just common tropes or features of stories that have lots of politics and, and big power games, but some of them are pretty specific and pretty detailed. And uh, yeah, it's kind of a challenge to suss these things out. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. We were talking about how, like, young Griff and Fade Rautha are both, like, manufactured heroes and manufactured rulers and how that's, like, not a good idea in the books. But it's true that, you know, Paul is the product of this artificial breeding program and he has been bred and trained to be a leader like young Griff. And Daenerys, you know, she's the Targaryen heir and she arguably may also have been the product of a breeding program because it's not explicit in the books, but there are all these hints about how, you know, many Targaryens were into prophecy, like Viserys in House of the Dragon. And there's all these hints that, you know, the Woods Witch said that Jaehaerys and, and his true. wife should marry. And there's these hints about Bloodraven may have, you know, like like Egg marrying a Blackwood who have the old gods' northern blood. And, like you know, that... It's a whole long speculative thing, but there are hints that the Targaryens may be following a certain prophesied bloodline genetic breeding program in order to, you know, keep the dragon blood to themselves and also and also potentially to produce the prince that was promised. That hasn't been revealed in the books, but I think that it is hinted at. You know, so so in a way, Paul and Daenerys, they are both manufactured and artificially bred to be saviors and heroes. But the difference between them and young Griff and Fade Rautha is that Paul and Daenerys also have experience and they also have struggle and they also have hardship on top of being bred to be heroes and on top of being born into these great bloodlines. So they, they are a confluence of like all, all the different kinds of power coming together in one person uh, for, for good or for ill, because of course, you know, <laughs> Paul, Paul's ascension, you know, I won't totally spoil it, but Paul's ascension turns out to be maybe not great. And Daenerys's ascension, at least in Game of Thrones season eight, turns out to be maybe not great. So that there's huge, <laughs> yeah, it's, huge it's, parallels it's a there. mixed bag because obviously she helps save the world from the White Walkers, but then that other part doesn't go so well. Jackie C yeah. in the live chat asks if perhaps the direwolf-human bond uh, was also engineered. I don't know how much you like these tinfoil theories, Aziz, but I, I do like the idea that the Starks in some way deliberately acquired the magical power to skin change and to warg, because there's all these bits in the world book about how the Starks the Starks took the daughters and the, and the Starks forcibly married the people who they conquered, including the Warg King. The Starks mm -hmm. married the daughters of the Warg King and perhaps it was marrying the, the family of the Warg King that gave the Starks the Warg blood and the Warg genes that allow them to have that power. And, you know, if George was reading Dune and, you know, George has written other stories about genetic manipulation and modification, 
I, I, I don't know if it'll ever be acknowledged in the books, but but I think it is very reasonable to think that the Starks deliberately acquired certain magical genes, just as the Targaryens have certain magical genes. I, I mean, Aziz, you and Ashea interviewed George Martin recently, and George Martin was telling you guys about how you know, yes, like the reason why the Targaryens do incest is in order to keep that dragon riding gene to themselves. And it's part of a sort of eugenic genetic plan. So George definitely is aware of and mind is thinking in that in that way. And um, everyone should go and check out the History of Westeros George Martin interview if you haven't already. Thanks for the plug. Yeah, that was a really good interview. We, we got a, a lot of time with him, almost an hour and a half. And We've listened to enough interviews with him that we knew when to like try to stop him because he'll go off for five minutes on something that maybe he's said in other interviews. So we were trying to steer him in the direction of new things. And one of the things that came from that was him talking about how it wasn't just the, the dragon lords that did that. It was also the blood magicians of Valyria that did that, so, which makes sense. They're the ones that are fiddling with the genes in the first place to make them permanent or to make them dragon bonded or to make them something that's similar to skin changing or whatever allows them to continuously have the same genetic features. Maybe some of that same magic exists in Westeros. We did some episodes on how the, tr the houses that still have weirwood trees seem to have stronger genetic patterns than ones that don't. So that might be, you know, a way for George to have sort of implanted that within his world. So yeah, there's a lot of that in both. And, and it's a, this is one that's also a, a not a trope, but a, a fun feature of fantasy and sci-fi. Maybe more fantasy, because in sci-fi, it's more, well, you engineer this. You can change someone's DNA. That's more like a, in a sci-fi setting, it can be almost ad hoc. But in a fantasy setting, it has to be a little mysterious and more like underground, a little more random, a little more uncertain. And one that comes to mind is Lovecraft. His breeding of people with the, the yeah. old ones, or the rather the deep ones, rather, was a recurring feature in some of his stories where people would have that within them, and it would slowly manifest. And if madness slowly manifests in the Targaryens, and they already have, instead of fish features, they have dragon features, which we see manifested in some of these children that come out horribly wrong. So yeah, I think it would be wrong to not be open to some of these genetic manipulation theories without being too specific about them. Yeah, I mean... Where did the Starks get that ability? Why did the, this horrible tradition of first night persist? Well, maybe because they were trying to spread this magical DNA around to enough people. Or maybe that's why people accepted it, because they could receive magical DNA. And that, that also explains, like, the dragon seeds, who, who sometimes they considered themselves blessed when a dragon lord would come and sleep with them, because they might have a, a silver-haired child that... Well, the implication being it's more than just the silver hair that matters there, you know? So, obviously, this is a big part of Dune as well. The manipulation of bloodlines, the certain families breeding with other families, certain things being right at the right time. I'm not as familiar with the Dune stuff. I haven't read Dune nearly as many times as Song of Ice and Fire, but you, you filled, filled that in all pretty well already anyway. So, yeah, the parallels are, are very strong there. There's other, there's other stories that do this, like The Witcher, Bloodline, you know, Chosen One. All these, these things come out in a lot of different stories, but I think both of these stories do it particularly well. They use, they, they invert the trope. They, it's not just chosen one, hero, win. It's, no, there's problems with being the chosen one. Oh, like, what does this do to you? Lord, Lord of the Rings has that in a sense. Frodo isn't a supernatural being, but having held on to the One Ring for so long messes that dude up, right? And that's 
somewhat directly supernatural, but it's meant to also be metaphorical because it messed up everyone who held it. Yeah, it all comes down to power, I think. Like like the political power, the magical power, the prophetic destined power. It's it's all different ways of looking at how does power affect people and how does, you know, the 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 act of striving to get what you want, how does that change you and and uh what what is the cost? I think that's a big part of it. So while we're talking about, you know, Daenerys with the Dothraki and and Paul with the Fremen, there's a lot of similarities, I think, with Jon Snow's relationship with the Wildlings and Daenerys's relationship with the Fremen. Because yeah. the Fremen are are the free people who are outside the control of the realm and the the Wildlings call themselves the Free Folk. They are outside the control of of Westeros and they both are underestimated by the powers that be. There's some, there's some really similar passages where the Baron Vladimir and the Emperor, they think that there's barely any Fremen, just like a few renegades at, at the at the edge of the desert, whereas in reality there's millions of Fremen all through the planet. And, and similarly, there's a moment in Book 3 where Tywin says, no, there can't be lots of wildlings. Like, the lands beyond the wall cannot support vast numbers of wildlings <laughs> when in reality you know a, a hundred thousand wildlings turn up at, at the wall later on and 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 so um they both of these they're both of these underestimated cultures who exist in, in these extreme climates and have adapted to these extreme environments and turn out to be a force far greater than anyone expected yeah that kind of speaks to how george writes his story and one of the major comparisons of it to a lot of other stories whether it's dune or otherwise he takes he takes these things and he layers them like paul had all these things wrapped into one character whereas we just talked about how a lot of these features are spread out between bran john and danny in some cases they're doubled <laughs> like you just said the fremen are paralleled in both the Dothraki and in the Free Folk. And there's elements to them in both. How they learn, how they learn to lead, the lessons they learn as compared to the lessons of their home culture and how they have to square those two is really important. Like everything Paul has grown up with, a lot of it's thrown out the door when he meets the Fremen. Uh, but on the other hand, some of those things line up pretty well and he's able to win them over using some of those things but also, he just has, you know, they he, the setup for him. You know, they are quoting scripture that, <laughs> you know, sh shows his arrival is coming. And they're like, oh, this is the chosen. This is the person we've expected. Which is, that, I guess, speaks to the, the vast amount of groundwork laid <laughs> for Paul before he, he took the reins, of, before he was even born. Uh, but also before he took the reins of power. And for Danny, those things were there, too. They just weren't laid out for her. They were laid out, but she took them. They were a part of her family, but she was an afterthought in Illyrio's plan until she wasn't, until she proved she was, they were like, oops, actually, she hatched, she did what now? She hatched dragon eggs? Okay, let's, let's work her into the plan, but she wasn't part of it initially, and that's kind of what John is. John was an afterthought to a lot of the main characters. He's not important. He's this kid on the wall, right? He was the, the bastard son that was the least important of the Starks. Obviously, as a reader, you don't necessarily see it that way, but within his, the lens of his society, he's sent to the wall when he's 15. I mean, that's, that's clearly a, a child you don't expect to have a big future, but obviously that's not how it goes at all. He has a huge future. And that's the similarity between Paul and, and Danny, except that John wasn't expected to die, though he was believed dead in the context of being lost beyond the wall. And of course, there's a couple times that happens, actually. But <laughs> John's believed dead a couple times, and now currently we're waiting on... a. 
him being stabbed and whether he's going to get back up. So yeah, that one keeps coming. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. I mean, we were talking about how you know Paul and Daenerys are both sort of manufactured heroes, and they come from like a a plan like you know Illyrio and Varys were planning to use Daenerys in their in their play for the throne and the Bene Gesserit we were planning to use Paul with the breeding program but but both of them they, they benefit from that plan but they go off the plan and they defy the schemers who wanted to manipulate them and I guess this is sort of mild spoilers for the first Dune book but you know Paul Paul defies the Bene Gesserit and he goes against their their wishes and their expectations. And I think in a similar way, Daenerys defies the expectations of Varys and Illyrio with the dragons and 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 her plans for Westeros. So so it, it's about defying the schemers and defying the plan and choosing your own path for better or worse. And and that's you know with, with the Fremen and the Free Folk and the Dothraki, like these are both these great armies that the heroes adopt control over and they use these armies potentially to take over the realm and and in all these cases there's an implication that it might not be such a good idea to do so because you know without spoiling too much the fremen's influence on the universe is maybe not good and you know john (laughs) in his chapters thinks a lot about how you know i want to let the wildlings through the wall but if I do that, there will be thousands of wildling raiders who might want to raid the north and burn the north and steal stuff and, and kill people. And and similarly, the Dothraki, Daenerys worries that the Dothraki could cause chaos in Westeros. So, you know, the, the Fremen and the, uh, and the wildlings and the Dothraki are all these powerful tools, but who can't, but, but who may cause as much damage as, as good. So it, it, there's a lot of danger and complexity there. I, I also like how, you know, each of these cultures has a strong male leader who is respectable in certain ways, but who the hero screws over. So, like, the leader mm. of the Fremen in Dune is Stilgar, and Stilgar is this really impressive, smart, thoughtful, capable, powerful guy, and... You know, I guess mild spoilers, but you know, Stilgar, Stilgar gets he becomes less, and he is reduced through his relationship with Paul. He becomes a follower, and and he becomes less of like his own man as a result of Paul. And there's a tragedy to that. And I think in a similar way, like John sort of supplants Mance Raider. You know, Mance Raider, jo- John likes mm. Mance Raider, and and Mance is almost like a father figure to John, almost like uh, how Stilgar is, is a little bit of a father figure to Paul. And yet John inadvertently causes Mance Raider's downfall. He is still alive in the books, but, you know, Mance Raider is much humbled by John. And I think the other parallel is is Drogo. Carl Drogo is the leader of the Dothraki, and I think he Drogo is less admirable than Mance <laughs> and Stilgar. But there is still a kind of tragedy in that Drogo you know, is beloved, at least by Daenerys, and yet Daenerys's actions cause Drogo's downfall. Daenerys tries to save Drogo from, you know, that infected wound, but, you know, Miri Mazder, her influence may possibly have caused Drogo's death, or at least, you know, Daenerys's, Daenerys's involvement in, you know, Drogo being turned into a catatonic zombie, and, you know, it's Daenerys who puts the pillow on Drogo's head. So, so in all of these yeah. cases, the hero causes the downfall of a at least semi-likable leader and and there's there's something messed up about 
all of those. Yeah, even if they're not likable, you like you say they're not like a good person. Like Drogo is not a good person, but you still yeah. you're still you still find yourself curious what he's gonna do. You wanted to see him actually invade. Well, like a lot of us wanted to see what happened if he invaded Westeros, and like how is that gonna go? Like these aren't real people, you know. I'm not I'm not wishing real suffering on the world. I want to see what happens if this dude invades Westeros. I remember a good friend of mine was like reading the books and was like, I can't wait to see what Khal Drogo does when he gets to Westeros. And I'm like, mm, <laughs> you know, this was like 10 years ago, but <laughs> so funny stuff like that. But yeah, you're right. Like that's a similar thing. Like it goes to the same power theme that we keep coming back to. George talks about it in terms of magic using a metaphor that I like, which is sorcery is like a sword without a hilt. And yeah. these or like peoples that you lead to victory against an important opponent only to have, what do you do with them afterwards? Is that same kind of thing. The Dothraki are a sword without a hilt. The Fremen are a sword without a hilt. Once they have a certain amount of power or reach or whatever, then yeah, they're, they're <laughs> you can't put that sword back in the scabbard afterwards. And that's a, yeah, that's a definite strong power theme between these two stories. There's an interesting line in, in Melisandre's POV chapter where she thinks that she's she's sort of pretending to be helping the wildlings and Mansraider, but internally Melisandre thinks, yeah, these wildlings are doomed. The free folk are doomed. Oh, yeah. Mansraider is doomed. <laughs> they will go extinct. There's no helping them. And it's like this really dark, like messed up thing that, you know, Melisandre and the characters are using the free folk, but Melisandre expects they're doomed. And, you know, m moderate... I suppose, spoilers for book four of Dune. But, you know, the, the Fremen, we learn, are also a doomed people because ultimately their culture does basically go extinct and they become this pathetic museum Fremen culture and, you know, they lose their original lifestyle. And, and you know, I think, that, I, think that's, I think that is inevitable for the wildlings in A Song of Ice and Fire because, you know, the wildlings have mostly already been killed by the White Walkers, I think, and, you know, like, the, and, and they've broken against the wall and they're having to leave their homeland. And, you know, if even if the wildlings survive, I, I, I'm not sure the wildlings will survive beyond the wall, which I think if they're not existing and living in their in their natural environment, in their in the place that their culture is based on, can their culture survive, you know? So, so I see a lot of similarities there with... The wild yeah. things and the Fremen. That's a great one because it, it's 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 also succinctly said by another character in the same parallel we're making, which is with Miri Mazdur. She mocks Danny when Danny's like, "Hey, I saved your life," and she's like, "Not really. You say you literally <laughs> saved my life, but everyone I knew and loved in my home, all those things are gone. Like, what is my, my, my life sucks now. I don't even really want to be alive. Like I kind of would rather be dead. I wish I died with everybody else. You know, I have nothing now. Yeah. And that's this, that's a similar thing, you know, with these, like if the wildlings aren't free, if they're not living the way they lived, then yeah, they are, they might still be alive, but they're no longer wildlings. It's not as harsh as Miriam Mazdur, more a gradual thing. Right, it'd be something that plays out over generations, like it's, like you say, it does with the Fremen. It's the same fate for those people. It's a it's a, a way of life that that dies with the events of the story, or starts to die. That you see that that boulder start to roll downhill, even if it takes a while to get to the bottom. Yeah, that's a great point about Miriam Azdur, because yeah, we were wondering earlier if you know a Song of Ice and Fire ever will sort of you know question more 
Daenerys's savior role with Slaver's Bay and everything. Yeah, I guess even from book one, the Song of Ice and Fire books have said, hey, Daenerys, like when you try and come in and save these other cultures, sometimes it's not as simple as you think. And sometimes you're not being as helpful as you think you are. And yeah, Miriam Azder is a really really strong point in that direction for sure yeah they make it clear and i think dune does this as well by showing you have well when it's an obvious brutal enemy your choices are simpler but it can still lead to harm later like danny it's gonna be very straightforward like yeah well dothraki are bad but they're not as bad as the others killing everyone literally wiping them all out and so that's the that's part of the conundrum but you also have this ground of well you can't just leave those people behind either like the dothraki those are you know you don't it's wrong to wipe them out entirely and with slavers bay the example is okay well george made it the worst possible people you could just show that even if you're trying to reform a culture that absolutely definitely is evil like there's no doubt slavers bay like he he goes so far as to have them have hairstyles uh, of horns yeah. right they shape their hair into horns like it's lit it's it's hell like it's meant to remind you of western christian versions of hell there's people living in an ex- in extreme heat with constant endless brutality and the people inflicting this are ultra rich people with horns <laughs> you know like what's it's the metaphors are really strong so if you can't fix that if he, the, the moral question isn't whether you should fix that, it's how do you fix that, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. And if you can't even fix that, then how do you do? How do you handle these much more nuanced situations? How do you like? Yes, it's right. Right. The emperor is trying to kill your family. You. It's fair for you to stop him. Let's look at all. The, you're also affecting the entire galaxy or <laughs> the entire known human galaxy. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think you're right that like George makes the cultures of Slavers Bay cartoonishly evil, so that we can ask, you know, if Daenerys. If Daenerys can't reform these cartoonishly evil slavers who literally eat puppies without <laughs> creating puppies. <laughs> without creating like a moral quagmire, then how on earth can Daenerys hope to take over Westeros without creating a similar <laughs> mess of, of 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 moral complications? So so yeah, I think that's what he's going this is, for. It's maybe getting a little too deep into just Danny specifically, but like, look who her advisors are. She's got like, she's gonna have like Makoro and Tyrion and Dora, maybe if he's Victarion. allowed. Victarion, not like the tattered prince, not upstanding people. <laughs> the tattered prince, yeah, like these are her people giving her advice, like Brown Ben Plum, you know, like she knows <laughs> these aren't good people necessarily, but still, this is just telling her things, you know, Kirsten is a good man, but he's not like savvy enough to give her advice on these trickier issues anyway. And, and he might not be around much longer. <laughs> yeah. Compared to Paul, who has like the most over the top, like virtuous, wise people, you know, the best of the best are his advisors and Daenerys's advisors are the worst of the worst. <laughs> yeah, it's an it's a really interesting dichotomy there that George lays out early on with the the type of education that the different people are getting in their their environment, their nature, nature versus nurture. So part of the horror of Slavers Bay is, of course, the Unsullied, who are these children who are forced to kill puppies and who are castrated and made into eunuchs and used as 
slave soldiers, and we think there are some similarities between the Unsullied and the Sardaka, huh? I'd say so, because they're both trained from a very young age, not birth, and they're born into an environment there's absolutely no escape from, and that you, you must turn into this thing that they're making you become. It's a lot like... Well, it's definitely slavery in the Unsullied's case, even, even you know, accepting maybe after Danny's freed them. And with the Sardaukar, they're, they're basically a slave army, right? Like, it's not quite that simple. I don't think they've got but... a retirement plan, no. <laughs> and they're pretty incredibly tough. Like, they're really hard to beat. They're, they're perhaps the toughest thing there is. In their, uh, in their world, although Sardaukar obviously tested by the Fremen, that's an ongoing thing, and uh, the Unsullied, we'll have to see what happens with them, you know, how they stand up to armies of dead or whatever else they face, I'm not quite sure about that yet, but seems like that'll be, even though they're not necessarily murderous, you know, raping savages or whatever you want to call what's going to be left behind, they still, something still has to be done with them, they still have to have lives after the fact, and they may be Rather than a danger to society, society might be a danger to them because everyone's going to, sh- you know, they might be shunned, they might not be accepted, they might, and they, I don't know, Westeros isn't going to be a kind place to them, even if they're heroic, even if their actions are, are important. I don't, I don't know that they'll be treated well. It might be like another opportunity for allegory after the fact, the veterans not being treated well, you know, <laughs> by the population that benefited from their service. Grey Worm will simply start his own noble house, Aziz, just like in Game <laughs> Easy solution. Like, like, yeah, like the the Unsullied themselves are not necessarily cruel warriors in the way that the Sardaukar are, but the creation of the Unsullied is unbelievably cruel. And I, I think that that cruelty is meant uh, meant to reflect on the society that creates them. Like, the cruelty of the Sardaukar shows how bad and unjust the Carino Empire is, and the cruelty of the Unsullied creation shows how cruel and unjust Astapor and Slaver's Bay is. So in both cases, it's, it sort of justifies those regimes being overthrown, I think. I also think there's similarities between the Sardaukar and the Kingsguard, because the Sardaukar are like the imperial loyalist best warriors who, who serve the Emperor, and the Kingsguard are the supposedly the best warriors who are most loyal to the Kingsguard. But, of course, we learn that, you know, Kingsguard are sometimes not loyal, and they are corrupt, and they're sometimes not even very good warriors, like Boros Blond. <laughs> and similarly, the Sardaukar, we are told, have become weaker because they're corrupt, and they're arrogant, and they're no longer as powerful as they used to be. So, so the Kingsguard and the Sardaukar both represent, like, the degradation and the corruption of the regimes. That's a great point. You, you see the Kingsguard, the early one, and it's something that's spoken of in the books in several places by several characters of how great the Kingsguard used to be. Even in Ares' time, and it's debatable whether those guys were actually great morally, but they were definitely great warriors. And yeah, like in the current times, yeah, these guys are a mixture of horrible people and just incompetent people and <laughs> and people who don't belong, like Jamie. Uh, <laughs> so right, even though he was, he doesn't belong for a couple of reasons, possibly. But either way, yeah, it, the the parallel is very strong, even though the Kingsguard is a much smaller order. And the, the Night's Watch isn't maybe as corrupt, but it is another example of an institution that fell apart over time. And that's causing big problems in this story. I mean, they're assassinating their own leader. It's not what you're supposed to do. It's not a great Kingsguard look. did that too. 
Yeah, both the King's Guard and the Night's Watch have killed their own leader in the <laughs> in the story, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The the so. the rot in the institutions represents the rot in the regime. Yeah, and you see these things within some of these other organizations. We and that how that's a recurring theme with someone like Ned, who leaves a legacy of people wanting to be like him because he did good things, and that's a, a positive inspiration. Versus the the exam, prior example of, of someone like Tywin who inspired the opposite. And then we have the same with like a, a Baron Harkonnen who he, he's worried about his own family killing him, right? <laughs> yeah. And Tywin's own family does kill him, you know? <laughs> so <laughs> Yeah, great point. Yeah, it, it's not only like institutional corruption, it's, it, it's families are dysfunctional, you know? Like the Carino family is so messed up and dysfunctional and the Lannister family is so messed up and dysfunctional and so are the... Targaryens. I mean, you know that that they. I mean, even the Starks. I mean, all of the families are dysfunctional in their own little ways. Even the Atreides, like you know, the sort of tension with with Leto and Jessica, and Jessica's resentment that Leto never married Jessica. You know, like I mean, it's like it's like what what is it that that quote about how you know happy families are all the same, but unhappy families are all unique and interesting. There are no perfect happy families in Westeros, or if there are, George Martin isn't writing about them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're they're not very fun. Let's leave them alone. <laughs> I always think that's what's happening on the Arbor. Like, except for now that Euron ships are hitting there, I'm like, where where is the best place to be? Like deep inland at the Arbor, the Ironborn can't get to. Just have wine and it's warm. Winter's definitely not going to get down there, you know. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe. I don't know where that would be in Dune either. Yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe House Toland or something is is having a perfectly happy, idyllic life while while all the messed up <laughs> families are off fighting for power. I, I'd like to <laughs> respond to some super chats, and then I'd like to move oh. on to a slightly more spoilery zone as we start to talk more about some of the later endgame book type stuff so thank you for the super chat from isaac who says what do you think are the themes that june and a song of ice and fire both explore the most and how does it compare i mean we've talked a lot about power haven't we they both obviously are stories about power and they're stories about heroism and questioning heroism and how power changes people it's also about like prescience and plans and prophecies and the dangers of those things and we're going to talk about those things in depth soon Thanks for yeah. the super chat from Glidus's bastard son, Glidus Pike, who says, <laughs> do you think that Dune part two will be any good? What do you reckon, Aziz? I think so. I mean, part one was pretty darn solid. I mean, I enjoyed it a lot. And I think there's no reason not to think part two will be pretty good, at least, if not better than pretty good. So I'm pretty optimistic. Yeah, and I'm, I'm not usually that optimistic these days. There's so many... If it was the first movie, I, I, w I wouldn't have been so sure. But now that they've done a good job with the with the first movie, I, I have more confidence in the second one. Um, so yeah, what about you? Yeah, I'm I'm hopeful. I, I noticed that at least from the trailers, it looks like Dune Part Two will be different from the books, much more than Dune Part One was. Dune Part One was pretty faithful to the books; it just cut out a few things. Whereas Dune Part Two seems to be introducing whole new plot lines that weren't in the books at all, in involving mm. like Irulan and Shaddam and it's stuff. Riskier, so, huh? yeah, it's riskier. Like those things could be improvements, but I, I hope that they don't, you know, mess with uh, the heart of what makes the books good. I, I think that Denis Villeneuve's intentions are good, and I think that he wants to capture what the books are about. So, so fingers crossed. Indeed. Thanks for the super chat from Film Cram, who says. 
are you suggesting that like the Kwisatz Haderach prophecy or like the Mucinaria Productiva, the Azora High prophecy has been implanted in its variations across the world artificially to prep for the White Walkers attacking? Well, there is that thing in, in House of the Dragon, which apparently George Martin suggested about how Aegon the Conqueror may have had a vision and conquered Westeros in order to protect Westeros from the White Walkers and avert the apocalypse. And there's the implication that, you know, Viserys believed in that prophecy and and passed that prophecy down and, you know, blood ravens manipulations. And I, I, I think there certainly is evidence in the books that the Targaryens were consciously preparing for the White Walkers to appear. And, and what is a prophecy if not a warning? You know, what is a prophecy if not someone from the past saying, hey, this is going to be a problem, you should prepare for it. Certainly a big theory around Quaithe as well, whether she's part of some manipulation. And manipulation doesn't have to mean negative, like they're, they have some goal of profit or ambition. It can mean we need to manipulate this person into saving the world, you know, or into putting her on the right path to doing what needs to be done. It's not about personal benefit. It's about making sure everyone survives or making sure this threat is met properly and without any interference. So, yeah, I think there's definitely room. I mean, it's outright said that you can go into someone's dreams with glass candles. George already made it possible in his world in at least one way. So, yeah, dream manipulation or implanting a prophecy, which these are different things, but, you know, they're related. They're there. Yeah, the Azor High prophecy is super old. The prince that was promised prophecy is perhaps a, a different variant uh, or just a different name for the same thing. And that's been around a long time and it's come up in multiple places. You got characters talking about it in a lot of like Eamon talking about it. It relates to Rhaegar, it relates to Bloodraven. Yeah, it's just we're just not there yet with all, all of the reveals, but it feels like it's going to involve some of those same mechanisms of manipulating the truth, but maybe for good reasons. And or just reading what's coming, you know, the prophet, it could be more straightforward than we think in some ways. It's just the way George is kind of revealing it more slowly. But either way, you have this parallel. It works either way. Yeah, it's interesting that in both Dune and A Song of Ice and Fire, like prophecies are not things that just exist naturally and automatically and immutably. And they just are what they are. And they just are the truth. Prophecies in A Song of Ice and Fire are made by people who have motivations and, you know, we see how Melisandre interprets and misinterprets her prophecies based on her own biases. And we see how, like, visions and dreams are not, not just something that happen naturally, but can be planted, as you say. Like, Quaithe with glass candles enters Daenerys's mind and gives her certain messages for her own reasons. And Bloodraven enters the minds of certain characters, like Jojen and Bran, in order to manipulate them. And so... So prophecies are not just this inherent magical thing, that they are just another form of power and of manipulation. So I, so I don't think A Song of Ice and Fire goes as far as Frank Herbert did with the Missionaria Protectiva, wherein entire like religions are created artificially over thousands of years deliberately by the Bene Gesserit. But it's not unreasonable to speculate, because yeah, it is suspicious that all over the world of Ice and Fire there are all these suspiciously similar prophecies about the prince that was promised and Azor High and Hercun the hero and the last hero and and you know you have to wonder are these like natural memories of the past or are they planted myths and planted messages with the purpose of telling people how to defeat the White Walkers when they come again how to create Lightbringer how to sacrifice Nizanissa how to use how to create Dragonsteel or you know whatever the secret is 
One we haven't even mentioned yet. We mentioned how Danny will bring Unsullied and Dothraki. She's also going to bring lore worshippers. We've been told that she's savior of mankind. Nero, the high priest of Red Temple and Volantis, the largest one, is openly preaching that when we see Tyrion and Jorah pass by. That's a big part of the religious aspect that we haven't really seen fully play out yet, where we're seeing the, we are seeing the Seven and the, the High Sparrow and that stuff just get started in the books, and we, we maybe have some idea of where that's going to go based on the show. But the show didn't bring in these hordes of relorists. They just had one. They just had Melisandre, and Euthorus was there too, I guess, but he wasn't really a zealot. So that's going to be, a, I think that's something that goes under the radar because it wasn't in the show, but I think we're going to see that is something else Daenerys is going to bring, which will also cause, which will help perhaps defeat the others, but also perhaps create some conflict out. Like, what are they going to do with all these, like, zealous fire worshippers in a realm of seven worshippers? And that's similar to some things that happened in Dune with belief and, and the, the people getting a little too into Paul and, and who he is and, and uh, that message going too far and, and things that you were alluding to earlier. Let's not forget fan favorite character Kinvara, who had such a huge impact on the story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Daenerys is suddenly playing with fire, very, very literally, with the uh, Reloric uh, priests and, and Volantis and all of that. And again, I think that's similar to like the religious fervor of the Fremen behind Paul. We see religion as a as a dangerous, powerful force that can get stuff done, but it also is hard to control, and fire burns. Thanks for the super chat from Chug, who says that uh, Jon Snow will be God Emperor of Westeros. Thank you, Lucifer, hey. Mor Lucifer Morgenster, who says thank you, big fan. Thank you, Nizar, who says something weird about George Martin. Thank you, Sean, <laughs> who says thanks, Alt, you got me into reading Dune. I'm onto heretics now, and they've easily been the best books I've ever read. What's your favorite nice. movie? Wow. Yeah, well, Heretics is is fun. A lot of people don't like Heretics and Chapter House as much as the earlier books, but I think they've all got a lot of fun, unique stuff going on. What is my favorite movie? Oh, my God. Aziz, can you go first? I need one. to think what my favorite movie is. I'm going to take a, a, an easy way out and just say the one I've seen the most, which is Monty Python and the Meaning of Life. So, Fantastic uh, choice. I've seen that an absurd amount of times when I was younger. I had it like, you know, and I, I, I'm old enough to have had a VCR and only a few tapes, and that was one of the few I had. So I would play my online computer role-playing games while just putting that movie on repeat. So I'll go with that, yeah. Fantastic. I, I've got to say, I, I've seen the Blues Brothers a lot of times. Ooh, good one. That's a good film. I also really like the Royal Tenenbaums. I think I have a very basic movie taste like i'm a real basic bitch when it comes to movies so i'm a fan of wes anderson for sure i can't believe you said Ro the royal tenenbaums because that is the first movie ashaya and i watched together oh really fantastic yep About yeah that. <laughs> no i love that film thanks for the super chat from jordan who says dune character alignment chart yeah i i saw that that um Notorious Rapscallion Alt Swift X did some um, character alignment <laughs> streams with Glidus ranking characters on how uh, how chaotic or orderly or and, and good and evil they are, the, the Dungeons and Dragons alignment system, which is fun. <laughs> nice. it, it would be interesting to do that with Dune characters because Dune characters' morality is so fraught and complicated. It would be very <laughs> hard to, to rank them, wouldn't it? 
Yes. Yeah, how I don't jeez. What would Paul even be? What would at least rank him as he Yeah. Paul exists True neutral? Paul exists <laughs> on every point on the morality spectrum simultaneously. He is uh <laughs> And don't even get us started on like God Emperor Leto the Second. My goodness. Cause he like he like enforces order for the sake of chaos and evil for the sake of good. <laughs> Thanks for the Super chat from Film Comics Explained, who says, The mystery of life isn't a problem to solve, but a reality to experience, which is one of the oh. great Dune quotes. And he says, Thanks for providing the best detailed analysis on YouTube for both Dune and Game of Thrones that has helped us all understand our experiences with our favorite IP. Cheers, Niat. Thank you so much, Niat. And uh, check out Niat's channel. Film Comics Explained. Thank you, Moss, who says, thank you for helping me stay connected to my friend who passed away last year. He loved your videos. Keep up the great work. Thank you, Moss. Sorry to hear about your friend. And thank you for the super chat from Nuisance, who says, I think there's parallels between Melisandre and Jessica as pseudo-prophets who are in on the facade. I like the position mm. facilitating a fervent movement that puts them in resulting isolation. Yeah, what do you think of that, Aziz? That's pretty clever, yeah, because Melisandre obviously knows she's making some things up and she's using, you know, changing some details to push things in a direction that she thinks is correct. And yeah, and Jessica also is, we see her get in trouble with the uh, Bene Gesserit because she does some things her own way and is already kind of a, a bit of a rogue. Melisandre's, like, connection to the Red Temple and, like, who sent her doesn't seem clear, which kind of leads us to believe, and I think reasonably so, that she's also a bit of a rogue and doing some things outside of what the uh, higher-ups or hierarchy, the the people that have wield power within the, the Red Temple would, would have done it. So, yeah, that's a really good catch. I like that. Yeah, I think there's a Sospek Martin where, where George did allegedly confirmed that like yeah melisandre is she she went to stannis and dragonstone on her own accord and she's not operating under the orders of a red temple she she's sort of a renegade red priest which is really similar to how jessica is like a renegade bene Gesserit who is deviating from from their plan and yeah like in that scene with mapes where jessica sort of lies and manipulates to fit the prophecy of the Lisan al-Gayib with Mapes, that is really similar to a lot of what Melisandre does. When we see Melisandre, Melisandre describes towers by the sea crumbling under a great wave or whatever, and Jon Snow is like, oh, is that Eastwatch? And Melisandre is like, oh yeah, that definitely is Eastwatch, but inside her thoughts we see Melisandre <laughs> going, oh, I have no idea if that's Eastwatch. I don't think that actually was Eastwatch, but yeah, Jon seems to think so, so I'll go with it. <laughs> So, and that's really similar to when, when Jessica is like, oh, the Maker, yeah, I totally knew that the Maker is a sandworm. Yeah, I know what a Chris knife is. So, so, so both Melisandre and Jessica totally bluff in a hilarious way. They, they, they cold read, almost, Mapes and John, respectively. So yeah, I think, that, I think that's a fantastic point, nuisance. Thanks for the super chat from Isaac, who says, rewatched your Hooded Man video recently. Who's your favorite character in the North at the end of Dance? I think that I think that Wyman Manderley is enormously fun because Wyman is funny and evil at, and sort of heroic all at the same time. Like 
Wyman has the speech about the North remembers and how he wants to avenge his son who was killed at the Red Wedding, and he gets revenge on the Freys by cooking Freys into pie and feeding them to their family, and he sort of wants to help restore the Starks, and he wants to save Rickon, but really he's doing it for his own political empowerment and he wants to make he wants to take over the hornwood lands and like wyman has so many layers and motivations and is so much fun and is so witty and and fun to read and um so yeah he's one of my faves thanks for the super chat from galitis who says can you make a video about how curious george is different in the books versus the tv show yeah look i mean it's hard to adapt i thought you did that already (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> I, I have been thinking of, of an april fool's joke explaining bionicles lore i i think it would be really funny to go real deep into uh all of that if anyone remembers what bionicles are but uh yeah there's no limit <laughs> to the ridiculous topics we can cover uh on an april fool's <laughs> video <laughs> Have you done any, like, straight-up joke videos on History of Westeros? We did once. Uh, we did the Wit and Wisdom of Stannis Baratheon a long time ago. And it was just, like, reading his quotes and, and just, like, setting up some of the funny things he said and just showing how funny he is. He's, we, we cited him as, I think, the third funniest character in A Song of Ice. There's Tyrion and Dolores Ed, I think, are probably ahead of him. But Stannis is, makes a strong case. He's, he's damn funny. <laughs> All his sarcasm and... Jokes about Robert and all that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Stannis was robbed by the Game of Thrones TV show. They, he has so many funny lines in the books that were just not included in the show, which is tragic. Yes, a real cra- a real tragedy. Thanks for the super chat from Dylan, who says, do the Bionicle video, unironically. Yeah, well, look, I, <laughs> guess, I guess we have to do it now. And that's all for this episode, but we do have more. There is a spoilery portion of this discussion that we also recorded in the episode, but we cut it in half so that y'all who don't want to be spoiled can not get spoiled. So that episode will be released separately. Look out for it on your feed in a week or two. That's it, and Valar, reread us.